You can turn to Daniel chapter 9. If you don't know this section of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are a series of visions Daniel has of the future. Have you ever tried to predict the future? Very difficult. Smart people get the future very wrong. I Googled like bad predictions and I wrote down a couple that I thought were funny. So here's some bad predictions by smart people. In 1949, scientific experts predicted that by the year 2000, quote, women will be more than six feet tall. They will wear an 11 shoe size, have shoulders like a wrestler, ooh, baby, (laughs) and muscles like a truck driver. Does that mean they'll have an ab? I mean, what does that mean? (laughs) Right? 1962, Decca Records, quote, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on its way out. That was the rejection letter for a group called the Beatles. Someone got fired. 1946, quote, television won't be able to get a hold on any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood screen every night. Daryl Zanuck, co-founder of 20th Century Fox. Oh, ye of little faith. You have no idea. You underestimate our ability to stare at little screens. (laughs) Greatly underestimate. 2007, much more recently. Quote, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. Steve Ballmer, Microsoft CEO. Who here has ever owned an iPhone? Raise your hand. Who here has ever owned a Microsoft 10 phone? (laughs) Bad prediction, right? These are smart people, right? CEOs. Founders of billion-dollar companies, and they have epic fails. It's very, very hard to predict the future. So we come to Daniel 9, which many consider to be the greatest prophecy in the entire Bible. So you can look at verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9 for this prophecy. We'll get into the backstory in a second, but here's the prophecy given by an angel to Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one, literally Mashiach, Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. If you know this prophecy, it's a prophecy called Daniel's 70 weeks. And what it does is it gives a start time 
that there's gonna be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which was in ruins at this point. And right then you start a clock and 483 years go by. And after those 483 years come by, go by, Messiah will come in to the city and be cut off. Guess what that just predicted? Jesus. Like it is a prediction about when Jesus will come and on Wednesday night, we'll do the math on this. It's not very fun. So I'll save that for a Wednesday night. It's just kind of like, okay, here it is. Uh, It's predicting from this point, 500 years or so will go by, 483 years, and then Messiah is going to come in, but Messiah won't be received. He'll be cut off. Like it's an unbelievable prophecy. Imagine for a second trying to predict something that's going to come to pass in 500 years. Imagine saying, hey, in 2519, this is going to happen and being right. Narrow it down. One of your descendants in 2519, one of my descendants will do this. Or the president of the United States will do this. How hard would that be? Will the United States even be a country in 500 years? Right? Will there even be an earth in 500 years? Because I keep hearing it's going to end in 12 years. So will it even be here? Right? You're talking about an unbelievable prophecy. And we'll look at that on Wednesday. But what I want us to try to grasp here is what led up to Daniel receiving this prophecy? Because maybe you and I have some questions about our future, have some some questions about, hey, I, I need wisdom in making decisions about my future. How do I live a wise life? And I think Daniel gives us some catalysts that lead to incredible wisdom being given. Right? So check this out. Beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. This is how it all begins. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Number one, guess what Daniel's doing? He's reading the Bible. He somehow has this scroll that Jeremiah the prophet had written 70 years before this. He's reading in chapter... 25, he comes down to verse 11. He hears God say to Jeremiah, hey, Jerusalem's going to go into Babylon for 70 years, right? He's reading the Bible. It's scripture that's the catalyst that sparks this entire chapter that brings about the greatest prophecy in scripture. It's scripture. It's one of the keys for us at Edgewater. Like we study the Bible. It's something that we do. And it's funny because sometimes I'll hear criticism of that. Like you guys up there at Edgewater, all you do is study the Bible. All you do is study doctrine. And I'm like, yeah, we're a church. I mean, I'm not coming to your son's birthday party and like busting out the Bible and trying to teach theology. Although I think I probably could. Try me. <laughs> right? We're a church. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. 
I thought you were supposed to be in the Bible. It's the catalyst for this prophecy. He's meditating, thinking about Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, that God's word is the energy for the believer. Literally, it energizes you and me that we're supposed to be in God's word and it energizes us and it gives us thoughts that are kingdom and gives us expansive ideas about the future and what we should be doing. Like, I believe that, that as scripture is taught, all of a sudden it engages people's minds so we start having thoughts and Holy Spirit impressions about how we're supposed to live and maybe mission in our own lives. Like, it just is the catalyst for that. Well, Matt, that never happens for me. Okay, could it not be the Bible's fault? Could it be the way that you and I sometimes read the Bible? Let me give you a little scripture that's helped me when it comes to the Bible. It's the book of James. And there's a bunch in it. I'll read it for you. It's verse 22 of chapter one. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. Could it be the way that we sometimes read Scripture? That James says there's a way to read Scripture that causes action and causes transformation. And to me, the analogy there is really good. He says it's like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets himself. Notice it's a man not a woman. Because men and women look at mirrors very differently, don't we? Men glance, women gaze. Don't they? Women, just think about your morning. Think about your mirrors this morning, right? You wake up and there's mirror number one. It's the bathroom mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. And you look at that mirror and see what eight hours of damage has done to you. And then out comes mirror number two, which is your vanity mirror, because you need a 360-degree view of the damage, right? So it's all around vanity mirror. 45 minutes later, it's now mirror number three, the full-length mirror where you gaze, yes, fixed all the way down to your shoe. I have never looked at my shoe in the mirror. You know why? I can do this right here. I can see them, no problem, right? Then it's getting to the car, and in the car it's mirrors four and five. It's my rear view mirror, no longer used for protecting the family, and then the vanity mirror on the visor, because it's gotta be stereo, like what is happening here, right? And then just before we get out, it's finally the pocket mirror inside the purse, just checking that monobrow. What in the world? No, it's all good. Okay, men don't carry pocket mirrors. If you do, you need to repent right now. (laughs) It's wrong. We can learn something from that, though. 
We're not supposed to glance at God's word. We're supposed to gaze at it. The Bible calls it meditation. And meditation, it's, it's you know the, the word behind that. It's like a cow that chews a little bit of grass, swallows it, and then just pukes it up all day long and re-eats it. That's literally what you're supposed to do with scripture. Not glance at it, get it through in the morning, 10 minutes, and then you're off. It's gaze. It's meditate. That's what changes us. That's where God begins to work. Daniel reads Jeremiah 25, 11, and he just starts to meditate on it and pray about it and talk about it. That's what happens. That's how scripture's supposed to be read. Try this for this week. Find one verse Monday morning. And the rest of that day, as you're driving it in your car or as you have time where you're not tasked with something, rethink that verse. Like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Start thinking that, or blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Jesus, how today can I make peace with people, peace with my neighbor, peace with somebody that I have not been able to make peace with? You just meditate all day long, and that begins to transform you. Like Daniel, you get advice, you get wisdom through the catalyst of Scripture from God's Spirit. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. So the first thing Daniel does is he just begins to read scripture. Read scripture. Meditate on it. And then, next thing he does, look at verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession saying, oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commands and plans. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our lords and to the people of the land. He prays. But this is a different kind of prayer. I call it a theologically thoughtful prayer. I think sometimes when we pray, we're not very thoughtful. It's like we just kind of push play on this prayer that we always pray. In our mind, we're not even thinking. It's just the words are coming out, but we don't even think, right? So um, my kids are a great example of this. Um, I have them pray over meals, and very often we'll like stop them because they just put push play on a meme. It's like, Kick, right? Lord, thank you for this food and bless our day. Bless your day. It's seven o'clock at night. The day's done. You don't even think about what you're saying right there, right? Like the best prayer we have in my house is Myron, my son. He's my youngest. He's always been this way. He's a very thoughtful prayer. I think the very first time he prayed, he was like two years old and he he wanted to pray over a meal. So we're like, okay, go Myron. And so he gets his little hands and he folds them in front of his head. And then he says, dear Jesus, bless mom, bless dad. And then he just looks up because we had like nine of us at that time, a couple of foster kids. And then he starts going around the room or the table and, and bless her and bless her and bless him. Not you. <laughs> Very thoughtful in who he was going to bless. 
Not blessing you all, man. <laughs> Please, can I have the blessing? Thoughtful. If you have time, and I recommend it, go over this prayer. It's phenomenally, phenomenally thoughtful, right? Like, he confesses sins. Daniel, who you know is a good dude. He has this humility in it that's unbelievable. He just says, we've sinned. We've blown it. He doesn't play the victim card. He doesn't say, God, why'd you do this to us? He's like, it was our fault that God, you put us in Babylon. We get that. We're not playing the victim. I think sometimes people sin greatly and then they shake their fist at God angrily at him and God's like, what are you talking about? You sowed those seeds and now you're reaping them. Don't blame God. Don't blame him, right? Like it's brilliant. Are we really thoughtful in our prayer life? Like imagine, like here's something that I do. Imagine if I talk to my spouse like I prayed to God. Would that sound right? Dear Charity, Charity, I just ask, I just ask that today, that, that today when you go out, that you would go to the shirt store and buy me some Briar's Natural Vanilla. I know that your arm is not short, that you have the power to reach up and grab that Briar's Natural Vanilla and to put it into your cart and that you have the, the resources and the, the, the money to go up to that front counter and to buy that Briar's Natural Vanilla. And I just pray that you would buy that natural vanilla for me. And I, and I just thank you in advance for buying me that Briar's Natural Vanilla. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? You'd be like, that's weird. I think sometimes our prayers are like that. Like we're talking to a real being. We should be thoughtful in the way that we talk to a real being, right? But in this prayer, I think there's one key that makes it so incredible. And it's a theological understanding. Not only is it thoughtful in it all, but there is a theology in this prayer that's revolutionary. And it's amazing. And it's based on one word, and it's this Hebrew word that's really thick. It's called sadaqah. I actually made a slide of it. It's so good. So there it is. I'm sure you can all read that well. Sadaqah. It shows up in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, or we would say sadaqah. Brilliant word. And sadaqah we, we say righteous because that's the best word that we have, but we don't really use the word righteous anymore, do we? Unless you're a hippie and you're like, righteous, bro. We don't use the word righteous. But if you look at the Bible, the word sadaqah, righteous, it has this incredible relational capacity to it. And what it means is this. It means that you are acting in right relationship in the context of that person, right? So, the way that I relate to my wife has a different sadaqah than the way that I relate to my kids, right? It's different. I wouldn't treat my kids the way I treat my wife, and I certainly won't treat my wife the way that I treat my kids, right? I'm not going to say, Charity, it's bedtime for you. Don't you dare get out of bed till the morning time, right? Charity, you clean that plate before you get it from the table. I've told you once. Charity, we're going to play the quiet game until the football game is over. 
<laughs> right? You would say that's unrighteous, man. You know, but for me to do it with my kid, totally righteous. So it's all context. Sadaka is a context-driven word, right? I don't treat my boss the way I treat my kids. I'm not snuggling up to my boss and reading a bedtime story to him. So there's a, there's a context to sadaka, and that becomes really important in how Daniel prays, okay? So check this out. Look at verse 7. We, just, we left on verse 7. Look what happens. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Guess what that word is? Sadaka. But to us, open shame. As to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. So what Daniel just said was this. You are righteous. Your sadaka, you, you were righteous in banishing us to whatever land you banished us to, right? Chapter 14, or chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for Yahweh our God is righteous, sadaka, in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Here's what, here's what Daniel is saying in his prayer. He's saying, God, it was right for you to judge us. Your sadaka, your relationship to us in the context of 400 years of us not listening to you, not obeying your rules, not doing right, hurting people, uh, abusing ourselves, sacrificing our kids to idols, what we've done for 400 years in judging us, you're righteous. That was the right decision for you to do. We have blown it and you had to judge us. Sadaka, righteous. Wouldn't we agree? Would you want a judge that did not judge evil and sin and wrong? No way. A couple years ago, I think it was three, there was a girl who was raped on the Stanford campus. Perhaps you remember, this is a big story. And the guy that raped her was a Olympic caliber Stanford swimmer. And so there was a big, uh-oh, and he was found guilty of that. Um, There's these letters written about it. And then the judge who should have given this guy who was found guilty 12 to 15 years, but because he was a Stanford Olympic caliber swimmer, he was given six months and got out in three. And there was public outcry. Even the Bay Area said that's wrong. And three months later, they actually recalled him because they knew that's not Sadaka. You, your position doesn't give you that ability. It does not give you the right to do that. That was unrighteous. This is exactly what Daniel's saying. For 400 years, we have flaunted against you and we have not done what's right. And so by you judging us, God, that is your sadaka. That's right. It's good. But he goes on. Verse 16. Oh Lord, according to all your sadaka, your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city. And Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And he goes on and on. This is what's surprising. God, you are righteous to judge us. 
That's good. We needed it. it was t- it's totally right. In your position as judge, you had to judge us. But now he says, because of your sadaqah, same character, because of your righteousness, save us, restore us, redeem us. So what Daniel is saying is this, God, I know that you're the judge, but I also know you're something else. I also know you're the covenant keeper. I also know you're the redeemer. I also know you're the restorer. I know you so well, God, that I know you won't leave us in our sin and leave us in our brokenness and leave us in our captivity and leave us in Babylon. You will restore us and rescue us because God, you're not only the judge, you're also our redeemer, our father, the very lover of our soul. It's brilliant. How do you see God? Is he judge? Look out, he's gonna get you. Or is he holy, could care less, let you do whatever you want? Or is God this beautiful sadaqah that's this, it's both. He's judge and redeemer. That's good theology. That's brilliant theology. But here's what's amazing. An angel shows up because of this prayer. And this angel begins to talk to Daniel. That's, t- that's a powerful prayer. You wanna pray powerfully? I'd love for an angel to show up. It's a powerful prayer. And the angel then says this. It's amazing. We'll do it on Wednesday. But look at verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed upon your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting Sadaqah, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Wednesday we'll see, God just says, it's gonna be much harder than you think. It's gonna be much harder than you think. But God says this, I'm going to bring in an everlasting Sadaqah, a righteousness that's never changing, never gonna go away. I am both the judge of things, no doubt, but I'm also the covenant keeper. So we, from our standpoint, get this, but remember Daniel's in the midst of the old covenant. So he would have been puzzled. How can God, how can God who needs to judge sin, how can God who needs to definitely punish wickedness and evil, how can he bring in this everlasting Sadaka, how can he do that, right? It's amazing because we've hurt people. We've hurt God's good earth. We've ignored his prophets. We've killed his prophets. How in the world is God gonna bring in this everlasting Sadaka where everything is made righteous and everything is perfect? How can he do that? We know that. How does God do that? The cross, right? The cross is where the wrath of God and the love of God kiss. Where all of my covenant breaking ways, all of my sin, all of my evil, all of my dastardly deeds that should be judged by God are placed on Jesus. And he takes the judgment for me. That I sinned my sins greatly into Jesus on the cross and he pays for them. 
so that I get the Genesis 12, one through three blessings that God wants to give to me as my heavenly father. Like this is the most brilliant, beautiful thing in the world. It's just, it's unbelievable, this prophecy. Given to a guy 500 years who'd just been, you'll see, he just scratches his head on it. How in the world can God do that? It only happens on the cross. That's the only place. And it says, everlasting. Guess what everlasting means in the Hebrew? Everlasting. Like this is a righteousness that's no longer if then. If you guys do what's right, then God can be your heavenly father. But if you do what's wrong, you get the judgment. This is an everlasting, never changing righteousness because Jesus pays the price for the sins of the world. It's brilliant. That's why the New Testament does this. 2 Corinthians 1.20. It picks up this idea and says this. It says, all the promises of God, all the covenants where God says, I'm gonna bless the nations of earth. I'm bless all the families of earth. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross because he took the judgment side of Sadaka for us. Guess what we receive? The fatherly, redeeming, restoring side of Sadaka, an everlasting Sadaka. Every need you have, every promise God makes meets every need we have in Jesus now. Do you need forgiveness? We have to work for it and try to figure out how to do it right. It's in Jesus. You need mercy? Freely in Jesus. Grace freely in Jesus. It, every need we have now. Because of all the promises that God has made. Because Jesus took the sadaka of judgment. We now receive the sadaka. The righteousness of a heavenly father who wants to bless us. It's brilliant. And some of us in here need to rearrange the way that we see God. Because I think many people, and here's what the enemy wants you to do, many people want to think of God as the judge. Look out. He's going to get you. He's checking his list. Checking it twice. Find out who's been naughty and who's been nice. And when that happens to us, what we do is we run from God. We're afraid of God. Well, guess what? The wrath of God has been appeased. The wrath of God has been taken care of. And now you and me are the recipients of his grace and his mercy. That's what we're the recipients of. Everlasting. Sadaka. That's why we come to the table every single week. Because when we come to the table, we're to be reminded God has judged. God has judged. God has paid. God has done it. And now you and me receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, peace. All, all the promises of God meet all the needs I have in Jesus. We're recipients of the sadaka of our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus today, We remember those who've sacrificed for our freedom. No doubt today, 
But even more, we remember you who became judged so I wouldn't be. We remember you who had nails driven in that I deserved, beaten for my sins, wounded for my iniquities so that I could receive the blessings of my heavenly father, the sadaqah that lasts forever. May we remember you this day. May we be a people that are so moved by your work that we must meditate on scripture, that we must have thoughtful theological prayers to you because you've given to us an everlasting sadaqah. Move our hearts, we pray. We ask this in your name.